0: Hello left fielders, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go.
1: It really depends on your business model and your risk. So performing loans, the borrowers are paying every month. So as a passive investor, there's a lot less work that is involved. Now I will tell anybody if you're investing in notes or even like private lending, because that's technically you're doing note or a note, it's passive, but it's active. You still have to do work. I don't want people to think that it's just like, oh, I don't have to do anything. The only time I'd say you pretty much don't have to do anything is when you're investing in a fund, which you have to do all that due diligence up front. So on the performing side, you'll hear a term mailbox money where people, they'll start paying and you're getting that payment every month.
2: Hey fielders! this is Julian McClurkin. When I'm not on the court with the Harlem Globetrotters, I'm the chief storyteller for TribeFest. Now, you might be thinking, why would TribeFest hire a Globetrotter? (laughs) Well, through my travels around the world, I've met so many amazing people and heard their incredible stories. And it's no different at TribeFest. My job is to share the stories of people investing together as a group, as a tribe. TribeVest allows groups to pool their capital, set up their LLCs and bank accounts, help with operating agreements, funding rounds, and so much more. Whether you're investing with other dads from your kids' preschool class or getting into real estate syndications with people around the country like LFI infielder Brian Pawnell, TribeVest helps them all make it happen. If you want to hear more about stories about TribeVest's customers, just check out TribeVest's YouTube channel. And if you're already ready to start investing as a group, Head on over to tryvest.com today.
3: listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeFest. The mission of Left Field investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community.
1: This is Dan Hanford from PassiveInvesting.com, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. I'm really excited
0: today to have Chris Seventy with us. He brings over 25 years of real estate experience to 7E Investments and has been actively buying and selling mortgage notes since 2016. And today's conversation will be mostly about those notes. So Chris, welcome to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast.
1: Jim, thanks for having me today. Excited to be here this Friday.
0: So the first question I always ask is, what's your journey? How did you get into real estate? And then more specifically, how did you get into notes? If you can just tell us how you got here, that'd be great.
1: Yeah. So stepping back, real estate was what I went to college for. I went for civil engineering. And when my senior year, I made a little bit of a switch because I was thinking I was going to be more on the design side than when I realized designing bridges for the rest of my life or something didn't seem that fun. So I flipped over into construction management my last year, part of the civil engineering program and got into that. So I was working for a general contractor for about 10 plus years uh, until basically you get into your mid thirties and then you get burnt out from working six days a week. And called, went over to Dark Side, which was with a developer. And the first thing guy was working with, developer, he said, Hey, what's in your own portfolio? And I said, Nothing. And he said, We got to change that pretty quick. Cause he goes, You ever hear of the 40 40 40 rule? I said, what the hell is a 40-40-40 rule? He goes, you work 40 years for 40 hours a week to only be able to afford about 40% of lifestyle you were living. I was like, whoa. So that kind of opened up my eyes and I laughed because with this being left field podcast, I'm used to the 40-40 club of 40 homers, 40 stolen bases back in the day. So yeah, so I started buying some rental properties, my wife and I, and we we're doing the bigger pockets Burr strategy. But we had kids and it was just too overwhelming, especially being in the Washington DC area of the amount of cash you need. And so my wife and I basically decided, hey, look, let's stop it for a little bit. So me being entrepreneurial was going on bigger pockets. And at first I saw tax liens. So I started playing with those a little bit, but I realized to me, it was boring. It was nothing really behind it. There's no strategy or there is strategy, but not compared to when I found note investing, which we're going to talk about today. And Then once I found out you could do note investing, I was a little upset because I didn't realize this business even existed. I knew there was private lending, but not decided side of note investing. So that's my journey through that process.
0: That's interesting. I haven't heard the 40-40-40 rule before, and it is so true, the 40% of your living expenses, and no one wants to live like that, but you work these 40 years, this long career, and then you realize when you get there, oh,
1: maybe I'm not there. Yep. Look at today. How many people do you see? I'm in my mid-40s, so my parents and others and stuff. I mean, thankfully, my father worked for a school system, so he kind of had a pension. But how many people do you see today in their mid-60s who did very well throughout their careers, but now all of a sudden, they're like, I still can't retire comfortably so
0: yeah, or the ones that have to go back because the market tanks or whatever, and now you're a Walmart greeter or whatever the cliche is, but you see it, no way to go. So notes are what got you out of the kind of the 40-hour work week and that place that you were, but how did you figure out notes? And I know I was digging around bigger pockets and I was an active investor, a turnkey investor, and I finally found what I'm passionate about, which is passive investing. You found what you're passionate about is notes. But how did you find that? How did you jump from the bird or the tax liens and then figured out, hey, notes is it
1: for me? Yeah. So I recently left my full-time job to do notes, but I was doing it for four or five years. I was working while doing notes. And what really attracted me to notes was several things. One is you can do it anywhere from anywhere as long as you have an internet connection. Uh, you can do it anytime during the day. So you're not... Comp- against people, like a property comes on the market, you got to get your offers in. Notes levels that playing field because you'll get a list of assets for sale and they say, okay, we need bids by Friday, you know, a week. So it's not like you're running out there and like you don't have time and then you miss the boat. So that was one of the key factors. Again, can do it anywhere and anytime during the day. So I could work my day job, spend time with my kids, and then my wife, if she goes to bed earlier than I do, used to call myself the midnight to two investor. Late night I was doing my entrepreneurial, my quote unquote. Side gig. So that's what really drove it to me. Plus, I come from a family where my parents, when I was growing up, they adopted four kids who were from a bad family. And I've always liked to help people or try and help people. And with note investing, you have that opportunity to work with people because you're buying loans at a discount to try and keep them in their house if they want a proverbial bubble play ball. If they're willing to work with you, you can work with them in most instances to try and keep them in their homes because and we'll talk more about notes. But one of the things that I think most people don't realize with note investing, investors a lot of times will just go to try and foreclose on these assets to try and get the property, but it's much more profitable at the end of the day to actually keep the people in their homes.
0: Okay. So let's dive in here. What are notes? It's a mortgage right on somebody's house, but talk to us about what are notes, what are the different kinds of notes, and just give us an overview from the start.
1: Yeah. Like you mentioned, when people buy a house, typically people are not paying cash for that house. So there's two documents they actually sign. And most people, even myself, always thought they were the same. You sign a note and you sign a mortgage or a deed of trust. And they are intertwined together. The difference between the two is the note is the IOU. The note says, Jim, I'm giving you a hundred thousand dollars and you're gonna pay me six hundred bucks a month for the next thirty years at six percent interest. Basically the IOU. The mortgage is the teeth behind it. Mortgage is that legal document that says, hey, Jim, if you don't pay, then Chris has the right to go after the property as collateral. So that's really the difference between a note and the mortgage, but they're intertwined because they're always hand in hand together. If you get a car loan, typically it's secured, but there's unsecured debt, which is like credit cards. So mortgages and notes are secured. Different types is first position and second position. Best way to think about it is you're in line you want to be first in line, meaning that if that person stops paying, you're the first one to get paid. Home equity line of credit, you see a lot of people getting those now because they've built up so much equity. Those are inferior to your mortgage, your first mortgage. So those are called seconds. Another name, like I said, is a line of credit. And then with notes, there's performing, people are paying. And then there's non-performing, where loans are typically 90 days or more delinquent. And one thing I just want to mention about that is most people think, oh my God, I missed mortgage payment. They're going to come throw me out. Most of our borrowers are behind three, four, five, six years. And it's not like somebody misses a payment we're foreclosing on them. And with the laws today, you can't even do anything to the borrower's at least 90 days past due. So just wanted to throw those out there as well. The difference between kind of a performing and a non-performing loan. And we primarily focus on the non-performing side.
0: Okay. And you mentioned that the second mortgage, the home equity line of credit is inferior to the first. Can you explain exactly what that means that it's in the second position?
1: Yeah. So let's say, go back to that, I lent you $100,000 and let's say your house appreciated to 150,000 and you go out and you took a $25,000 line of credit. Now, all of a sudden something happens values decrease plus you didn't take care of the property now let's say the property is only worth ninety thousand dollars and it gets sold at a foreclosure sale. It's not like each person gets a percentage it's oh there's 150 owed, we get 90 so basically we'll split it or give people percentages of things if you and I went in on bought something and paid ten dollars a piece we sold it for eight hey we'd each kind of get four bucks we'd lose a buck a piece this is basically the first position we get all of that money. And if there's, once they're satisfied or paid off, if there's additional funds, it goes to who's next in line. If there's not any funds to go to that person, like the second line of credit, they get completely wiped. They lose everything. So lines of credit or seconds, of course, have much higher risk when you're investing in them, especially in what I'd say is today's economy where things are starting to, I think house prices, I think most people agree, are starting to get a little soft.
0: And you talked about performing and non-performing. Can you dig into that a little bit and why one is maybe better than the other as an investor or is it? Can you just explain those a little bit more?
1: Yeah. It really depends on your business model and your risk. So performing loans, the borrowers are paying every month. So as a passive investor, there's a lot less work that is involved. Now I will tell anybody If you're investing in notes or even like private lending, because that's technically you're doing note or a note, it's passive, but it's active. You still have to do work. I don't want people to think that it's just like, oh, I don't have to do anything. The only time I'd say you pretty much don't have to do anything is when you're investing in a fund, which you have to do all that due diligence up front. So on the performing side, you'll hear a term mailbox money where people, they'll start paying and you're getting that payment every month. Your returns are typically lower. If you're buying performing loans that were at one point in time, maybe they were had some delinquencies or poor credit, you might see returns between 8 10, maybe 11%, might be able to get into that double digit range. Non performing, you got somebody who hasn't paid for three years you're buying that loan at a substantial discount, probably like 50 cents on the dollar. We typically now pay 40 to 60. And four years ago, we were probably paying 30 to 50. Pricing has gone up because of inventory levels on distressed notes have gone down. But people ask, how do you make money on something that isn't paying? And that goes back to where that mortgage comes in handy, where you can enforce the mortgage by filing a complaint against a borrower to say, basically, pay up, let's work out a deal, or we will have to look toward proceeding towards redeeming that property through foreclosure or other means.
0: And why would a lender sell a performing note? I know that sometimes I get a mortgage and then it gets sold off and I have another servicer, but I understand getting the non-performing notes off the books, but why would you sell a performing note?
1: really depends. A lot of investors who we buy from in funds, they look to balance their portfolio. Like for us, we like to keep between 30 and 40% of our portfolio performing and 60, 70 non. If that balances start getting up to 50, 50, we may try and liquidate some performing, get some cash in to go buy additional non-performing assets. So it could be for fund balance or portfolio balancing. could be they just need cash for something else. Some investors also might be looking at a multifamily deal or another type of deal. And it's easiest to liquidate performing assets because there's a lot more people who are interested in a performing asset than there is a non-performing asset. So the point I want to make about it is people don't sell it. A lot of people think, oh, there must be a problem with it. There's many different reasons why people sell things. Like You may have a good rental property in your portfolio that has been really an awesome rental for you, but might have capped out its value, for example, or you have another deal you want to go to. So it's, hey, let's sell this asset to use those funds elsewhere.
0: And when you have a non-performing note, obviously the goal is to rehab that to make it performing, correct? And how do you go about that? What are the steps that you take to make it performing note again?
1: Yeah. So one of the keys about investing in non-performing notes is your team around you. Like we, my company, we don't physically call the borrower and try and work something out. The first line of defense is what's called a loan servicer. That's a company that collects the payments. And lo and behold, whoever's listening, who has a mortgage, you're paying a loan servicer. It could be owned by your bank or lender, or it could be by typically most of the third parties that they quote white label for your bank. So they're the first line of defense. So they're collecting payments, but they're also doing that initial reach out. They're trying to get on the phone with the borrower, trying to work out some type of payment plan agreement, forbearance plan, there's a lot of terms, but basically trying to work out some type of agreement to get them paying again. So that's the first line of defense. If they can't get through or can't work something out, the next line is an attorney. We'll use an attorney, which will first send what's called the demand letter, which is a letter demanding payment. And a lot of times that is where the rubber hits the road because when people aren't paying a lot of times they won't answer the phone and the letters they get in the mail from their servicer, they probably don't even open them because they're like, oh, just another statement. Let me just throw it away. So once they see something from the law offices of XYZ, typically once they see that, we'll be like, oh, I better open this. And then that kind of starts a process of usually they'll call the attorney at that point in time. And that's when we usually start seeing it. So we do typically have that attorney send that letter Earlier on, we give the servicer 30, 60 days to try and make communication. And if they don't, then we'll usually just have the attorney send that letter.
0: What's the process when you buy a non-performing note? It's someone else's problem. You bought a problem. Now you got to fix it. Is that where you start? You give the servicer 30, 60, 90 days to figure it out, and then you start on the attorney? Or if this is a deal that's six years and they haven't paid their mortgage, are you jumping right to the attorney?
1: By law, you have to give the individual 30 days to at least, once a loan gets sold and transferred to a servicer, there's a 30 day period where a borrower can technically dispute it. So if they dispute the debt and you had that letter sent, basically you have to reply to that letter and then you have to start the process all over again. So we usually wait the 30, 45, 60 days The interesting thing, this blows my mind, and this will probably blow your mind too, because people just can't fathom this because a lot of investors, they know every single asset they own and so forth, basically tell you what color paint is on the walls. A lot of these funds, they're buying thousands and thousands of loans. And the cost to manage a half million dollar loan and a $50,000 loan is exactly the same. It's the same servicing cost, same foreclosure costs, same everything. So they focus on that top tier of the most prized loans. I've had loans where they just literally, I'll use the term, sit in a draw, and nobody's reached out, nobody's contacted, nobody's even tried to contact them for years. And then all of a sudden, I've had loans where the servicer picks up the phone and calls, and they're like, I've been trying to figure out who to send my payment to. I didn't know where to send it because the loan's been sold so many times. Another one we see a lot is bankruptcy. And in chapter seven bankruptcy, the borrower technically doesn't owe you the money anymore. So they're thinking, oh, I get a free house. Well, no, that's not the case. You don't have to pay it anymore, but the lender can now go take the house or you work out an agreement. And a lot of times the borrowers just think, oh, I don't have to pay, and after that happens, the servicer can't contact the borrower because what do they call them for? They don't owe them any money legally because the debt's wiped. So you're forced to start legal. And a lot of times some of these companies will just look at and be like, we're not starting legal yet or wait. And again, it sits. I've had in the last year, three occasions where I've had our attorney reach out to the borrower's attorney. That was in chapter seven and said, hey, look, does your borrower know that they don't owe the money, but if they want to keep the house, they work out a new payment plan on that old loan. And they're like, oh, let me get in touch with them. And they do. And then lo and behold, we work out new agreements and can work with them on the late fees and some of this other stuff a lot of times because it was part of negotiations with them to get them paying. But it blows my mind that there's a lot of loans out there. And I'll mention this too, is a nationwide bank who's one of the largest banks in this country that when the COVID came through, certain loans you could foreclose on still, certain ones you could not. They just ceased doing anything because they couldn't figure out which loans they were allowed to foreclose on and which ones they couldn't. And we're talking about one of the largest banks in the country.
0: Wow. That's incredible. So I still have trouble understanding how someone can go three, four, five, six years and not pay their mortgage. So how long can I stop paying before someone comes after me? I thought, like you said, a month or two, if I don't pay my mortgage, knock, 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 someone's coming to take my house. So what's the average length of time a note is non-performing?
1: Yeah, so it really depends on the investor and the typical process can be anywhere from six months to 18 months is what a foreclosure would take. And there's two types of states. There's judicial states, which means you have to go through the court And there's non-judicial states. That means you don't have to go through the courts. Believe it or not, 90% of them are really broken up by kind of red versus blue states without getting into political discussion, except for like California actually is a state that actually isn't too bad based on how it leans. It would be a little harder. New York, for example, take you five years. You go down to Georgia, you're 60 days. So you can see the big gap. It really... Again, depends on the lender itself and are they managing that file? Typically when loans get four months, six months behind, you'll try and work out. Typically what happens is they get six months behind, they get that demand letter and it's like, okay, let me work something out. You work out some type of payment plan over like a six month period. Two to three months go by, they make two, three payments and they stop paying again. Then it's like, okay, let me try another plan or whatever. And the question is how many times when that plan do you give them And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, they're 10 or 12 months behind, then it's like, okay, kind of enough sometimes where they just have that repeated process of not being able to pay. But it blows my mind sometimes of how long some of these loans just have gone three, four, five years just sitting there with, I think the longest one right now we have in our portfolio goes back to 2011 was the last time the borrower made a payment.
0: Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left-field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us LFI. Do you love coffee? Have you ever wanted to invest directly in the coffee industry? You can invest now in the number one largest coffee producer in the country of Colombia, the Green Coffee Company. Headquartered in the U.S., they are now Colombia's largest coffee producer and have opened their $100 million Series C funding round to accredited investors. The Green Coffee Company has over 7 million coffee trees and is on track for a 2026 sale or IPO projecting an 11x ROI for investors. Discounts are available for early funding, but there's limited capacity available. To invest, visit legacy-group.co and click the Current Offerings tab. That's the Current Offerings tab at legacy-group.co. Though there's a few things I like about note investing, but probably my favorite thing, other than it gives you a nice return, is that it's one of these things where you can actually help people and make money at the same time, right? Can you talk a little bit about, you said your goal is to keep people in their homes. So how does that work when you're rehabbing a non-performing note to make it performing? What kind of negotiations do you do? How do you keep them in their home so they don't get foreclosed on?
1: Like here's an example, a deal we just reached. Borrower, the mortgage was from like 2012. The balance on the loan was about $80,000 and they were paying about $900 a month. And they basically had a woman whose spouse passed away. So she had a loss of income that was kind of helping contribute. We were able to acquire that loan for about $50,000 is what we paid. So what's that, about 62 cents on a dollar. And we borrow was about 15, 18 months behind roughly, if I recall. And we reached a, an agreement with the borrower to kind of re the loan. I don't think we've ever increased an interest rate on a borrower. Typically, we don't also increase the payment. The goal is to try and lower the payment. So we dropped that $900 payment down to $700 a month, what the borrower could afford. Because it doesn't make sense sometimes to be like, Okay, I'll drop it from nine to 850. And the borrower says, Well, I can't afford that. Well, if the borrower can't afford it, you're just wasting time for us. And as to let people know, time is very important in note investing. Time is money in note investing. So you want to try and come to some type of resolution ASAP because time again goes back to money. So we dropped the payment down to $700 and we did what's called a forbearance plan, which is, you know, we're basically pausing any legal action and we're giving their six, like a trial payment plan of if you can make this over this $700 over six months, we'll modify the loan, which means we're permanently going to change the loan to that lower payment. And what that does is it gives us the flexibility of during that trial payment period, if they falter, the old terms still apply. So they were to falter, we can still say you're 18 months behind. If I modify the loan first, that's starting over. So then I'd have to wait 90, 120 days till they fall behind again. So that's one way where we help people is by taking those past two sometimes, rolling it into the end of the loan. But in many instances, we're typically taking that principal and interest payment and trying to knock that down because the borrowers just can't afford it. And a lot of times, there's a reason why. They may have temporarily been laid off or they got sick or had a family loss. So you know, we try and paint that picture when we're reviewing these loans and have them under due diligence to try and understand what that problem is. And at that point in time, we're already working like, okay, what's our exit plan? So we can run our numbers off of that exit plan to make sure the numbers still do work for us as well.
0: Right. And you can lower the payment on that loan because it's not an $80,000 loan to you, it's a $50,000 loan because you bought an $80,000 loan for 50,000, right? That's where you can make your money still. So it's a win-win. The person stays in their home and you make money.
1: Yeah. And one thing I'll mention to people, listeners too, just remind people, we're not buying the house. That's a question we get asked a lot. Oh, well, you own the property. No, we don't own the property. We're just the lender. We're stepping in and I'll use Wells Fargo's just name as example because everyone knows who they are. But instead of you paying Wells Fargo every month, you're paying 70 investments every month. You don't call Wells Fargo to fix your roof or to unclog a toilet. Right.
0: So. Interest rates are increasing. Inflation is here. There's uncertain times coming. No one knows what's going to happen. But as interest rates rise, what does that do to this industry, note investing? Are there going to be more non-performing notes? So if there's an economic downturn, is that good for note investors? I know it's not good for everybody, but is it good for note investors because more loans will go bad? Or is it bad for note investors because you have some loans that will go bad most likely, or is it both?
1: It's going to be both. So there'll be loans that we had that were performing that most likely will go in default, which that happens all the time. Whether it's a good economy or bad economy, stuff happens to people all the time. So that's part of it. It's interesting because everyone asks the first, we get asked this question like 10 times a day, especially from investors looking to invest with us. And the interest rate right now, where it's at from... A no perspective is somewhat interesting because we're not originating new loans, so it's not like we originated a loan six months ago at four percent and now all of a sudden it's at seven. Like you can't sell that, or we're selling it much at a bigger discount. But like you said, the inflation and the loss of jobs, we will see more distressed borrowers. Now we're at like an all-time low in history for the number of people who have defaulted on their loans. I think we'll get back to a normal. We're not going to get to like a 2008. Personally, I don't see that happening. So when that does happen to supply demand business, supply goes up, there's actually probably a little less demand because more investors have gotten out over the last three to four years because of the lack of inventory. So we'll start to see pricing like that loan I just mentioned, that $80,000 note that we paid $50,000 for, like I said, 45 years ago, I probably would have paid forty thousand for that loan, and it's probably going to go back to somewhere probably in between where it's not fifty; it's probably forty-five. But the benefit to that is it also helps us a little bit. It gives us more flexibility on working out with some of these borrowers. And again, because at the end of the day, if you have to go foreclose on the property, it's usually not in the greatest condition. You have to clean it out, pay the agent, foreclose all that process. You're losing probably twenty-five percent of that value during that time. Whereas if I can keep them paying and get a nice double-digit return on it, it's that win-win. And by more delinquencies, I think it's actually going to, A, will it help us? Yes. It might give us a little better returns, um, but it also gives us the ability to also work more with a borrower where instead of 700, maybe I could go to 650, where in the past I couldn't.
0: So our community left field investors is passive investors, and we're always looking for new opportunities and new asset classes. And we believe you have to vet the sponsor first and then then the deal or the asset class or the market. So how does someone vet an operator like you? How do we know you know what you're doing? How do we build that trust? I mean, aside from just developing a relationship, what are some of the questions we should be asking
1: note operators? The first question I always ask, and I'm an investor as well. If actually, We've actually put together like 25 questions you should ask any sponsor. It's on BiggerPockets, you can download it. The first question I always ask people is, send me a sample of your monthly or quarterly report and a sample like balance sheet or financials that you provide to investors. That's the first thing I always ask. And with this being recorded today, there's in the news in a different industry, a balance sheet came out about a billion dollar company filing bankruptcy and the balance sheet was literally a joke, I guess. I looked at it and I chuckled. So that's the first thing I typically ask is show me what you send people. And if the person can't show you anything, that should be a red flag because I like to think I treat people's money like it's my own. And the only way to do that is to watch it like a hawk. And have your books done, have balance sheet, have reporting out to people. So show people how you do that. There's some websites out there, like I know a lot of people use Verivest, for example. The interesting thing is I'll note that I tried to get on Verivest and they actually, because of the type of fund we have, because we have a regulation A plus offering, which has to go through the SEC versus the Regulation D's, which are exemptions, Verivest told me like we don't take regulation A offerings. They're like, You've already gone through the SEC. And I was like, Oh, okay. Because that's a good marketing thing to have people say, hey, I'm ver- verified. And I'm just using them as an example, but I know people, other fund managers who have gone through them. So the balance sheet's the first one. There's this typical common questions of Are you currently being sued? Lawsuits, do try and get a background check on somebody. Have they ever filed bankruptcy? Pacer is a a site where all the bankruptcy filings are all public, so you can look up people to see if they've ever filed bankruptcy. I recommend you always pull some type of background check or skip trace on anybody. A lot of passive investors in real estate have owned rentals at one time think about the amount of due diligence you do on that renter who may be paying you a thousand bucks a month. You're looking to give somebody a hundred thousand dollars and a lot of people do more research on that renter than they did the person they gave the money to.
0: That is a great point. You're absolutely right. So talk about your fund. I know it's different because it is the, the regulation A, but it also, there's some difference in taxing because part of whenever I do note investing or private lending, I like to do it out of a non-taxable account, like a self-directed IRA or something like that, because you have to pay taxes on this stuff. There isn't the depreciation and some of the other benefits. But you guys have an interesting outlook on that or interesting setup. Can you talk about
1: that? Yeah. First, I do have to give the standard caveat. I can't give you tax or financial advice and all that fun stuff. But the way we structured it, I've run other funds in the past and also own notes in my portfolio. And it's the dreaded ordinary income, K-1. If the fund were to take on any type of debt, then you get the UDFI slash UBIT type stuff. And when we're going through this, originally, we're looking at like a REIT structure, which we couldn't do, or it's not tax beneficial to do a REIT because of REITs are meant to be passive where we're buying distress notes. And I literally spent an entire weekend reading tax code on REITs and then had to throw it out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we end up doing actually a C corporation, which everyone knows what a C corporation is. And by doing that, It allows anybody who should have allow anyone who's investing to A, if you're using an IRA, avoid any UDFI because it's a C Corp, because we're paying that corporate tax rate before it's part of like distribution. So we're basically absorbing that tax. And then the other half is you're a shareholder in the company. So it's just like you're buying Apple stock or Google stock or any other stock where if you hold it for a certain period of time, you're at that dividend rate versus that ordinary income rate. So I you know, I joke to people, we start at $500 investments are minimum, and it's non-accredited or accredited. So we tell people, hey, you've got an 18-year-old kid, they place to throw 500 bucks. But we've done videos to show like 8% at a dividend rate is better than 10% at a 37% bracket. And then investors, as they if they invest more, can get up to like a 10% return, which is better than the typical 12 that a lot of people will see on the hard money side. Getting too much into numbers, which is tough to understand that we're a podcast, but my point is people should look at the structure because, you know, and you go look at the net, not the gross.
0: Yeah. That's a great point because if you're looking at the wall street and I mean, I don't believe you can get this, but you talk to some financial advisors and say, you can get eight, 9% returns on your stocks or mutual funds. Okay. Maybe you can, but then you have to pay tax on it. Are you better off at 7% in a real estate deal where you're not paying any tax. And it's the same thing here is you have to factor in taxes because that's the biggest eroder of wealth. And so I think it's neat that you've built in kind of a lower taxable situation for notes because in the past it was either notes in your self-directed IRA or you don't do notes because you don't want to get taxed on it. Well, this allows people to get into a lower tax rate, it seems. So that that seems like a pretty good deal. The last question I always ask is, what is a great podcast that you listen
1: to? Besides mine?
0: Well, yeah. Actually, give me the name of yours. We'll put that in the show notes anyway, and then you can't pick that one.
1: So ours is the Creating Wealth Simplified Podcast is what basically our podcast is. I like to listen to the All In podcast is one that I like to listen to. Another is Tribe of Millionaires, which is part of a group called GoBundance, another good podcast as well. So those are pretty much the two. I jump around a lot. Lately, I've been doing a lot more YouTube stuff than I have been on the podcast side of things, but am going to take some time off next week and I'm sure I'll be hanging out by a pool because we're heading to somewhere much warmer than the Washington DC area and listen to some other podcasts.
0: Well, that's awesome. Thank you for those recommendations and have a nice trip and enjoy the warm weather. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way they can do that?
1: Yep. They can go to our website, which is 7einvestments.com. That's the number seven, the letter E, investments.com. Or email me, Chris at 7einvestments.com. Or you can go on Google, Google 7e Mortgage Note Investments, see a little banner behind me, and you'll find us there as well.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you very much for being on this. This was great. It was good learning about notes and trying to understand this asset class. So we really
1: appreciate you. Oh, absolutely. And thanks for having me on. And people, if you have questions about note investing or anything, feel free to reach out. We're always happy to provide people some information, feedback on things. We don't sell anything or any courses or anything like that. So we're always happy to answer questions that people have.
0: Excellent. Well, I will put all your contact information in the
1: show notes. So thank
0: you very much and have a great
1: day. Yep. Thanks, Jim. And everyone, thanks for listening. Visor
0: provides investors with a secure platform that displays a comprehensive view of all of their holdings on a single holistic dashboard. From real estate syndications to private equity, crypto to traditional investments with AI driven, unbiased, honest insights to maximize return, Visor is your one place to rule them all. Automating performance tracking, projecting future cash flow, analyzing all your financial documents and much more in one powerful solution, making it easy to follow the money. Sign up for a free 30-day trial now at Pfizer.co.
3: Hi, this is Zach Haptenstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise48 Equity. At Rise48, we've successfully purchased 38 different properties worth over $1.5 billion worth of real estate and gone full cycle and sold 11 different properties, drastically exceeding projections for our investors. If you're looking to invest with an experienced sponsor in either the Phoenix, Arizona or Dallas, Texas markets, then we're the group for you. To learn more about investing with us, visit our website at rise48equity.com and set up a call with me. Thank you.
0: I learned a lot about notes in that conversation with Chris. I also learned some other stuff. I love the 40-40-40. What was that? You work for 40 years, 40 hours a week, and you end up with 40% of your living expenses as what your income is. So I guess I don't like that, but it was an interesting way to look at it. And it is a part of left-field investors. A lot of people's goal is to make that optional, make that 40 years and that 40 hours a week optional because you have other income streams. So that was kind of neat to hear him say that. And another thing, the note and the mortgage, you know, I do private lending. And there's always a mortgage and a promissory note and personal guarantee. And I always get confused what does what, but I thought he did a good job of explaining that where the note is basically just the IOU and the mortgage is where the collateral is that's where the hammer comes down if you don't pay. If you don't pay, then the mortgage comes in and cleans you up and takes care of you. I do like these kind of investments because, as Chris said, the goal is keep people in their homes. And real estate, we're trying to provide safe places to live or safe places to work. And so there is a lot of community benefit and benefit to society of being in real estate. And I think node investing is one of the places where it is the most visible because you buy a note that's not performing and instead of just evicting the person, you work with them and try to get them to stay. And it's a win-win-win, right? The homeowner wins because they get to stay in their house and they're maybe paying a little bit less. The note holder wins because they're converting a non-performing note into a performing note. And even the original bank wins because they write off that original note that they weren't gonna get paid anyway. And so they're done with it and they can move it off their book. So it's really a way that you can invest and make money and also help people, which is always something that I like to do. I'm talking about screening sponsors, asking for reports. This is basic, but a lot of times we don't do it. Ask for, hey, what do you send your investors every month or every quarter? Ask for one of those. I'd like to see one before you invest. Why would you not do that? As as Chris said, people spend more time vetting the tenant that's going to move into their rental that's going to pay them $1,000 a month, maybe they spend more time vetting that than they do a sponsor where you're going to wire them 50,000 or $100,000. So it makes sense. Ask all the questions. Don't be afraid to ask. If you don't get the answers, move on. There are plenty of people in this business, plenty of operators that are high quality and communicate well, and and you can build relationships with those people. So I love hearing that from Chris. That's all we have for this time. We'll see you next time in the left field.